The reading this morning is taken from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, starting at chapter 4 of verse 13, uh, proceeding to uh, chapter 5, verse 11, and that can be found on uh, page 1188 in your uh, Bibles. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left behind until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep already. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, and the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, <clears throat> the destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. You do not belong to the night to do the, or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us also be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting the faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Donald. Should we pray? Lord, we thank you so much for the power of your word. And we ask that you would bring your comfort and your hope to bear on our lives this morning. And that you would help me as I speak. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to speak with you this morning on the subject, hope in the face of grief. Hope in the face of grief. Now, it might sound like... Um, an odd subject given our preaching series at the moment entitled um, How to Light Up God's World. And you might think, uh, quite rightly, 
if there's anything in life less likely to light up God's world with hope, it's the dark shadow of death and grief. Grief can feel, I think, like being submerged into a world of pain that previous to the grief you didn't even know existed. For me, I uh, lost my mum to cancer as a child, and um, I've experienced some other losses since then. But I know there will be many of you who have gone through or are going through unspeakably painful losses and grief. But the truth is, even if you're not in a season of grief at the moment, the fragile and broken world in which we live is such that this is something we really need to come to terms with because it's a matter of time until death and grief will come knocking at our door as well. And so there's nothing more critically important. There's nothing more relevantly practical, I would submit to you, than this whole subject of hope in the face of grief that we were just hearing about. Steve Jobs, uh, the amazing chief executive of Apple, um, said this in his famous Stanford speech shortly before his death from cancer. He said, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. He goes on, almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or, or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. And in a similar way, the Apostle Paul tells us that our experience of death and grief actually highlights the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus. And what Paul says here, it's really a kind of natural continuation of everything he's been saying right the way through 1 Thessalonians. This is a suffering and persecuted church. It's likely that there were Christians who had been martyred in the congregation. And the theme of endurance in the face of suffering runs throughout this whole letter. And so having kind of dealt with this subject of living well when they're suffering for following Jesus, Paul now turns quite naturally to the subject of Christians who have died. And in our reading this morning, Paul focuses on two towering facts that he believes can help us when we are grieving for Christians who have died. And they are the resurrection and the future return of Jesus Christ. It's those two realities that Paul unpacks. And we're going to see how the resurrection and the future return of Jesus Christ can transform three things, really. Firstly, it transforms how we grieve as Christians. Following that, how we live. And third, how we do community as a result of that. So firstly, how we grieve. Now, I've had the real special privilege of conducting many funerals during my time in ministry. I've sat with and pastored many grieving families who have lost people ranging from a few weeks old to a few hundred years old. And while it's always an immense privilege to do so, I always notice the astronomical difference when the person who died loved Jesus 
and believed in his resurrection. It always provides this incredible injection of hope in the face of grief. And as Christians, hope is in our bones, isn't it? It's at the core of who we are and what God has done for us. And when you think about it, how could it not be? Jesus came into the world and brought hope to everyone that he met. He forgave sins. He healed the sick. He spoke the truth. He lived with unfailing and perfect integrity. And he was hope personified. And then in the cruelest turn of events, he was arrested at the height of his powers, 33 years old. He was falsely accused. He was beaten, tortured, and spat upon. He was stripped naked and nailed to a cross while the religious authorities sneered at him and said, he saved others, he can't save himself. Jesus was hope personified and yet Jesus died. But three days later, God actually raised Jesus from the dead. He appeared to his disciples and to 500 other people, but unlike every other um, would-be Messiah figure in the Roman Empire, the Jesus movement exploded in growth and continues to grow at an astronomical rate globally. And the growth of the early church in particular, if you're exploring Christianity, really makes absolutely no sense to me if Jesus did not walk out of the tomb. Why am I saying all of this? Because Paul says in verse 13, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. See, Paul says here it's possible to be uninformed about Christians who die, or perhaps to functionally kind of forget the resurrection hope that we have. And it's understandable to see why, isn't it? Death gives the impression of total finality. And grief in particular is a particularly brutal and lonely process. But Paul says we need to be careful that we don't give in to the perception that death is final. Because the resurrection of Jesus is not a nice kind of uh, religious idea for the church. It's the greatest act of God in the history of the universe. It is also the most amazing comfort we can possibly have when we think about Christians who have died. So let's look at verses 13 to 14 a bit more. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It's important to notice here, Paul does not say that Christians can't or don't grieve when a fellow Christian dies. Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus, his friend. Grief is an important and natural process, and it would be a perversion of this text to say that Paul is saying we can't grieve. But notice what he says. He says, so that you do not grieve, and here's the really important bit, like the rest of mankind who have no hope. It's grief 
without hope that Paul wants to speak into. It's grieving that functionally forgets the resurrection of Jesus that Paul wants to address. And he tells us when we grieve for Christians who have died, we always grieve with hope written into the story, whether we can see or feel that hope or not. Now, a few points of clarification. For any of you who have gone through bereavement, you will know what it feels like to be given well-meaning but unhelpful platitudes. Things like, well, they're in a better place now, or God takes the best first, or even more ridiculous, as I've heard it put, one poem put, do not stand at my grave and cry, I am not there, I did not die. And these kinds of things are just not helpful when people are in a season of grieving, are they? But what Paul says here is not an unhelpful religious platitude. It is the truth. Jesus did rise from the dead, and it does have this power to transform despairing grief into hope-filled grief. And so this is a skilled and sensitive pastor that we were just hearing, talking to a hurting and suffering church and saying, don't forget the resurrection hope that you have in Christ. And if you're here and exploring Christianity, I would just say I've seen firsthand the despair that people feel in the face of death when they've got no hope in Jesus. It is bleak. And it exposes, to me anyway, the complete emptiness of life without God. But it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus died and rose from the dead so that we could have real hope in grief, real patience in tears, real comfort from heaven when we've come to the end of ourselves. I often like to say that the ultimate measure of our beliefs is not made in times of ease and prosperity. No, the ultimate measure of our beliefs is how they come to our aid in times of death, despair, suffering, and especially grief. And the resurrection of Jesus absolutely delivers the goods. I've seen it time and time again, not as an escape, but as a hope that just as God brought Jesus out of the grave, so also God will not leave you and I alone in the various pits of life, pits of grief that life can throw at us. I want to submit to you, if you'll let him, Jesus can make all of the difference in the world for you. Just ask him for his help. So the resurrection and return of Jesus can transform despairing grief into hope-filled grief. But it can also do more than that. It can also help us to live in the here and now. Which leads into my second point, how we live. And Paul starts by making quite a sobering point, actually. In verses 2 to 3, he says, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So he's saying that the resurrection and return of Christ are not good news for everyone. 
For those who don't recognize their need for God and turn to him for forgiveness, there is a very real warning here, isn't there, of God's judgment. And that judgment, we're told, will be sudden, unexpected, and painful. And he likens it to a woman going into labor. And so he lays down that quite sobering point, but then he immediately moves on to this incredibly positive side of the resurrection and return of Christ, and specifically how the resurrection lights us up to live for God. So he says in verse 5, you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. It's teaching that when we become Christians, our identity changes. We did belong to the darkness, doing and saying things of which we're now ashamed. But when we trusted in Jesus, we were actually transferred into the light, such that now we can say, um, I am a child of the light. This is my identity. I belong in the light of God's presence and approval, and that is my home, and it's my destiny. And this is where I think so much religion goes wrong. You know, in essence, to me, religion says, obey God, and then God might let you into his light. Christianity says, you're loved and accepted in Jesus Christ, therefore, obey and walk in the light. The difference is, could not be bigger. It's the difference between night and day. Get that order wrong or mixed up and everything else falls apart. God makes us his children by sheer grace, and then in that order, he says, walk in the light, because I've made you children of the light. And this is so important, especially, I think, because it's not just about what God did in the past, in this case, the resurrection of Jesus. It's not just about what God will do in the future, which is the return of Jesus. Now, here it's about who we are, as Christians as a result of these facts. Here it's about who we are in God's sight and what he has pro- how what he has promised relates to us individually. And gosh, that's just such an important step that it's easy to miss, isn't it? We can know general truths about God, like the resurrection. But unless we know how these truths relate to us individually, we're missing out on so much. You know, when Nikki and I first got married, we bought loads of new furniture, and I completely forgot that we'd already bought um, an electric drill, and so I sat down with this rather rusty sort of screwdriver um, in my hand, turning each individual screw myself. It took hours, and as you can imagine, my hand got sore very quickly. I'm terrible at DIY anyway. But as soon as I found the electric screwdriver, everything became so much more straightforward. And in a way, that's what it's like when we know that we're children of the light, when we know deep in our experience that we are in Christ. And Paul tells us quite clearly, doesn't he, you are children of the light. He doesn't say, do you feel like you are? He just says, you are. This is what God has made you. This is something God loves for his children to know. It's also the very thing the devil seeks to attack 
and undermine is who God says that we are in Christ. But there's no ambiguity from Paul here. You are children of the light. Do you know that? Like for the Thessalonians, life can be really hard sometimes, especially if we're facing grief. But God wants you and I to know not just the facts of what he's done, not just what he will do, but the fact of who we are in his sight because of these things, that we are children of the light. And when we know who we are, even when the way ahead is clouded or obscured by tears in our eyes, well, we can live, as he says in verse 6, awake and sober. We can say, verse 8, we belong to the day. Let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. It gives us the ability to get back up and to keep going with life. So the resurrection and future return of Jesus transforms how we grieve. As a result of that, it transforms how we live. But hanging on to resurrection hope is not something we can do on our own. And that leads into my last point, how we do community. So in chapters 4, verse 18, Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And then in chapter 5, verse 11, he repeats it again. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Now, I was once told that a sermon without a clear so what, a sermon without a clear practical action to take at the end is not a good sermon. Well, Paul has helped us out here, hasn't he? He says, encourage one another. This is the so what, the call to action, the practical side of all of this. Encourage one with one another. And so what I want to do now, just as I begin to finish, is to just give you a few practical tips about how we can encourage each other, and especially how we can encourage those who grieve. And the first one seems fairly obvious, but uh, nevertheless it needs saying. And that is this, to put yourself in the close orbit of other Christians. And if you would like to get connected with a home group or a smaller group of Christians and you're not, do come and speak to me after the service. I would love to help you to do that. Because if we wait till we're at a crisis point, we've waited too long. If you get that encouragement and support around you now, so that when the season of grief and the trials of life come, you've already got strong relationships around you to support you and pray for you. And notice, Paul says to the whole church, encourage one another. This is for the whole church. It can't be done by just clergy and paid staff. This is a collective activity we're all called to engage in. The second practical tip I would give is to not underestimate the power of just showing up. When we know someone who is grieving, one reaction we might have could be to sort of stay away. And that can come from thinking, well, I don't know what to say, or to feel a fear of upsetting the person who's grieving, and so we sort of subconsciously stay away. But the problem with that is that grief is incredibly lonely. 
And by simply showing up at the hospital, at the house, at the significant anniversary, I found that this can be an incredibly significant and encouraging thing for people when they're grieving. And the reality is, the beauty of just showing up is you don't need to say anything. I mean, the reality is some losses are so big that there's nothing we can say to make it better. And knowing that can actually take the pressure off. Just showing up and listening can give strength and hope. If you want to look into this further, I'd highly recommend a video by someone called Nancy Guthrie. You can type it into Google. And uh, it's called What Grieving People Wish You Knew About What Really Helps and What Really Hurts. What Grieving People Wish You Knew About What Really Helps and What Really Hurts. Google it if you'd like to get some more tips. It's really helpful, practical advice. And the final tip I would give when speaking to those who grieve, just as we come into finish, is to not expect the talk of um, heaven or the resurrection to make everything better. To not expect that because of these promises, that therefore, or to not make the other person feel that therefore they in some way should not feel sad. Because at the center of our faith is this incredible comfort, isn't there? That Christians who die go to be with Jesus and one day we will all receive brand new resurrection bodies. And of course, that is an incredible comfort. But that doesn't mean that there isn't grief and tears now. And that's okay. Paul says, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. In other words, Christians do grieve, you know, like Jesus did at the grave of his friend Lazarus, but we do so with hope. The grief is still there, but so is this hope and comfort that we have in Christ. That's what he's saying. And one way we can encourage each other is by not treating it as like a zero-sum game that we can have faith in the resurrection and have full trust in that reality but still cry and feel sad at the same time. And allowing space for that, I think that actually brings an incredible amount of strength and encouragement when we're supporting people who are grieving. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful comfort and reassurance it is that those who die in Christ are with you, enjoying your presence as I speak. That one day they will be reconciled to um, a new resurrection body in which there's no death and no pain. And we look forward to it and anticipate it eagerly, Lord. And I pray that for any of those who are in a season of grief, or supporting those who are grieving, that you would comfort them in the way that only you can. Thank you for that promise. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Thank you for that promise that we are your children. Pray you would keep that promise of the hope of the resurrection in your presence with us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.